Good morning. Thanks for uh, having me back. I realized last week I was your guest preacher, and while I was trying to be aware of time, I grossly overestimated my abilities to keep it short. I also told you guys I endeavored to preach a, a passage I had never preached on before. Well, this week I am preaching a passage I have taken three sermons to preach, so today should be fun. What I'm going to do is turn our attention to that reading this morning, Luke chapter 15. If you have it in your Bibles, it's also printed for you in your bulletin. We're going to read just a few verses, but we're really covering the whole chapter, Luke chapter 15. And this is one of those passages that is probably very familiar to us who have spent really any amount of time, uh, not just in church, but in life. We're used to this passage being called the parable of the prodigal son. And as soon as I say that, I know that conjures certain images, certain uh, things we naturally associate with that word prodigal. But today, I I hope to show us a different side of this parable, of this story that Jesus told. So Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 3, so he, Jesus, told them this parable. Skip down now to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I heard a couple of you do that. That's awesome. Sorry, that's a... That's just a tradition and a custom I am used to. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time to have him open the eyes of our hearts to receive it this morning. Heavenly Father, I stand before you 
as nothing but a sinner in need of your grace, like the rest of us. So be merciful with us, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and show us great and wonderful things in your word, but nothing more wonderful than your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, behavioral scientists tell us that uh, the way our brains work, we don't notice things that are familiar and, and usual. That we take so much information into our senses that our brains have to uh, kind of package it all and codify it in a way that says, if this is familiar, we don't have to pay it much attention. We can go about our, our life, and you'll know this if you're used to driving a certain way. You never notice the road until there's construction, which in DFW, you're always exploring and experiencing something new. But that's just how, how we are made and created. We, we crave clarity and simplicity, and things that we're used to seeing just get nicely fit and packaged together, and we don't pay attention to it anymore. It's when something is unexpected that we pay attention. I fear this passage is one that has become too familiar to us. Like I said, it doesn't matter if you've been in the church all your life or, or not. This might be your very first Sunday ever to grace the doors of a church. You, you know something that comes to mind when you hear the word prodigal. And if you're like me, you didn't grow up in the church, you're, you're used to equating that with just sort of um, uh, sin or, or wickedness or, or just doing what you want to do, right? The, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of a lifestyle. Or maybe you're used to hearing it even in a church context, and it, it conveys the same meaning, only it's applied to someone who engages in a certain particular way of life. But this passage is not called the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus shares that it's really the parable about a father who had two sons. And the prodigal we need to pay attention to is not the one of the younger brother. It's the prodigal father in this passage. First, let me explain why Jesus tells this parable. What I want to do is my favorite way of preaching. It's literally just to walk through the text and point out some things, and hopefully we can see it in a new light. This all comes about because there are those who see who Jesus is drawing to himself. And they're grumbling and complaining, it says. It's the Pharisees and the scribes, those who would be considered the, the, the moral majority of Jesus' day. The, the fine, upstanding citizens, the religiously devout are seeing that Jesus is actually engaging in and spending time with people they would call sinners and tax collectors. Now, sinners was what they would call anybody that just lived in a different way than what they would approve of. A tax collector was something else entirely. A tax collector could have been a fine, upstanding citizen, only they made their paycheck by collecting taxes for the enemy. They were, they were in other words, Jews like them. Only their allegiance was to something beyond their national identity. It was to their own pocketbooks and helping Rome extract from the people, their own people, more and more funds. And these were the people that were drawing near to Jesus. It says all of them were drawing near to him. And it was those over here, the fine upstanding religious citizens, that were having a hard time with who Jesus was eating with, 
Well, you say, why is that such a big deal? Because this word receives is more than just tolerates. This word that we, are, we see here, that this man receives sinners and eats with them, is a word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 16 to talk about how those of us in the church, in the household, the people of God, are to receive one another. In other words, we're, we're to treat them as if they were our family. As if they did belong to us by blood and by heritage. Because of our association with Jesus. This is how Jesus was receiving these sinners and tax collectors. And they were furious. He eats with them, which in a Middle Eastern context and setting, well, really any other cultural context and setting but a North American uh, context, this would have been significant. Those of you who have traveled overseas, let me just ask you something. Have you ever been invited to a meal by someone from another country? I see a couple of heads nodding. What has been your inclination at such a request? If you are from North America, you would probably decline it, even if you were hungry, because you don't want to impose on somebody. That's how we view guests. That's how we view interactions. That's how we view people coming up and knocking on our door. It's an imposition. I, I would never want to come in. I just need a minute of your time. But in their context, to refuse a meal is to refuse friendship and fellowship and connection. It's a disgrace to not take them up on it. I know this. My wife is Croatian. I had to learn this the hard way, that the way I grew up is not the way she grew up. And the way my family interacted is not the way her family interacts. Now, when we come to town, which for us is a transatlantic flight, but when we come to town, it doesn't matter if we've eaten on the plane. It doesn't matter what we've come through. We will always stop at her Aunt Doda's house because it's on the way to her hometown. And her aunt will have a full spread, like a mini feast. And... and I'm always feeling like, this is too, we don't need to, like, I'm not that hungry. I'm just, I'm tired and cranky. I want to sleep. And it is without a question, we're going to stop there and we're going to spend four hours before we ever get anywhere else. It took me forever to realize this is normal for what they do on any given weekend. And it doesn't matter if we're coming from the country or their sons who only live 40 minutes away are back home for the weekend. They have a feast because it's a time to reconnect and to enjoy family and one another. And to refuse that, no matter how many times I can say, no, thank you, I really am not hungry anymore. I've learned, eat half, don't, don't, don't eat everything, <laughs> leave a little bit left, and you can get through it pretty okay. Otherwise, they will fatten you up pretty quickly. It's different in different cultures. When Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners and receiving them as close as any family member or friend should be received, this is not only shocking, it's intolerable. The Pharisees and the scribes just can't get over it. They are the ones, in other words, who are standing off at a distance while those who really should be the most ashamed, the most fearful, are the ones clamoring to be nearer to Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? It says he told them 
a parable or this parable, but he doesn't just tell them one. In fact, he tells them three. And what I want to do is summarize the first two of these parables and get to the third one where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning. The first parable he tells is about a shepherd. And this shepherd has 100 sheep, but he loses one. That wording is very careful. If you go back and you read it, it doesn't say one was lost. That would have actually been an acceptable way in a Middle Eastern culture to talk about someone losing something. Because you never bring shame on yourself. You never say, I lost a sheep. You say, the sheep was lost. You don't say, I broke the dish. You say, the dish was broken. Instead, Jesus tells this parable in such a way that says, no, there was a shepherd and he lost one sheep out of a hundred. Now, I'm not a farmer nor the son of a farmer. I have never herded anything in my life uh, except people from time to time. I can imagine being a shepherd and having 100 sheep. One of them goes missing. I'm probably justifying it in my mind. We don't need that one. He, he, he's gone. He's lost forever. He did it to himself. Just let him go. I mean... From a business standpoint, those of you who are business owners, don't you build in margin knowing you're going to take a loss on some things? It's just the cost of doing business. Sheep were a commodity. They weren't pets. And here a shepherd loses one. But what does he do? He leaves the 99. We're not told he leaves them in the care of anybody, just that he leaves them. And he goes and he finds the one. And when he finds the one, which would have been a, a, an epic journey of itself, he then has to wrangle the thing up, put it on his back, and hike it back to the rest of the flock. Now, I mean, this was not a casual endeavor. This was costly to the shepherd. But he does it. And when he comes back, his first order of business is to call the community and his family and his friends and everybody around and throw a party. Because this one sheep that was lost is found. And that's a reason to celebrate. Now the second parable Jesus tells is about a woman in her own house who has ten silver coins and one of them is lost. But again, it's not said that the coin gets lost, it's she loses the coin. And she searches frantically throughout the house until she finds it. Now this is a bit more severe. This is not a 1% loss, this is a 10% loss. This is a bit more costly to a woman who, by all intents and purposes, we can assume she was probably by herself, a widower. We're not told she has anybody to help her search for this coin. She just has to go looking for it. And these are not like nice uh, suburban homes in DFW. These would have been built on dirt and mud and rock and huts, and you might have an oil lamp for a little bit of time to light the place to find something as small as a coin. And yet she searches frantically until she finds it. And when she finds it, what does she do? You guys know this story, don't you? She calls everybody she can think of to come to her house, and she throws a party. Because something that was lost is found. Now these are the first two parables Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees and everybody listening in on this conversation. But he's really setting up this third parable or this third story. We know it because it takes up the bulk of what he says. He gives a lot more detail in this story. 
And what he's trying to do is something that in, in a Hebrew Jewish mindset would be stacking the case. This is like a lawyer sort of building up testimony or building up evidence, going from the lesser to the greater, knowing that you set it up in threes when you want to really emphasize something's important. When, when, when a Hebrew uh, teacher or rabbi or anybody wanted to emphasize something, they would repeat it. That's why you always read about holy, holy, or truly, truly, I say to you. It, it's an emphatic. It's like putting it in bold, underlined, and exclamation points. When you put it in threes, it's like putting it in neon lights and blazing it for everybody to see. It's pay attention to this. This isn't just holy, holy, and truly, truly. This is holy, holy, holy. Do I have your attention now? And he goes and he tells this story about a man who had two sons. There was a man who had two sons. Notice that the subject is the man or the father, not the sons. They're, they're actors. They're objects in the parable. They're not the point. The point is there was a man who had two sons. And one of them we learned pretty quickly is a, a pretty slimy son. He literally comes to the father and says, Father, will you divide my share of the property and give it to me? In other words, he's saying, I'm impatient for your death, Dad. Can you just give me what's coming to me now? I, I, I don't want to live here anymore. I just want to go do what I want to do. And I can't do that here. So will you just give me what's coming when you put it like that, this is a sleazeball. This is not a nice guy. This is not somebody who's just living a wild, reckless, teenage, 20s, 30s, midlife crisis kind of a life. I mean, this is somebody who's literally severing a relationship with his family. Saying, my independence and what I want to do is more important than staying in relationship with you. Notice, too, this isn't the inheritance he's asking for, but his share of the property. You see, inheritance in, a, again, a Middle Eastern culture implied obligations. You see, you, you didn't have money like in stacks of dollar bills or in data points on a computer, right, that represented value in some kind of a market system. You literally had land, possessions, or livestock. That was how you made life work for yourself, your family, and your community. To receive the inheritance, it would always fall the greater portion to the older brother because he was going to assume responsibility for the whole family and the whole community, not just himself. It wasn't he could finally buy that beach house he's always wanted or that Corvette or whatever other midlife crisis point there is. It was, I am now assuming the mantle of responsibility for those closest to me. The younger brother would, would get something too, but it would always be less. But the younger brother knows that. He doesn't want any of those ties and connections. He just wants the stuff. The sleaziness just gets worse. He wants the resources to leave. And surprisingly, the father grants it to him. This is the first of two things that are really shocking here. This is the first part, what we read about the father. 
He divided his property between them. Notice both sons received their share. And we know something too that from the law in Deuteronomy 27, his share, the younger sons, would have been a third. In other words, it was written in the law that the son knew what to ask for. He wasn't asking for anything unlawful, just rude at best, insidious at worst. I mean, it wasn't against the law. Technically, he was within his right to ask for it, in other words. Now, the father, again from a Middle Eastern standpoint, should have been furious and whipped and beat the son senseless. It is all about honor and shame. And to have a son literally spit in the face and say, Dad, can you hurry up and die and give me my stuff is one of the most dishonorable things a son could ever say. Instead, the father takes it and he gives him what he's asking for. This is the first shocking thing about the father we learn in this passage. He endures the pain of rejection and provides what his son is asking for. But we learn something else. We see the silence of the other son. We already know there's two of them. And in a family like this, let alone in the whole community, everybody would have known what was going on, especially those closest to the situation. You see, if you grew up in a Middle Eastern context and you are a brother or you are a son, the person who has the second most authority over you after your father is not your mother, it's your older brother he would have known what his younger brother was asking for, much like my sons know what all the younger ones are always doing all the time. And yet, we don't hear a word from him. This is why this is shocking. When there's a breach of relationship, when something has been so devastated and destroyed, like a son leaving the family, dishonoring his father, There needs to be a third party to enter the situation, a mediator to come in. The one who's been dishonored can't be the one to pursue. That would be uh, putting on shame and disgrace upon shame. Instead, somebody close to the situation, close to both parties, would have to enter in and somehow bring them back together. In this context, that would have fallen to the older brother. He should have been the one to step up and say, Brother, what you're doing is wrong. Don't you see that? Father, he's our younger brother. He's an idiot. Just give him another chance. It's something to that effect. And yet we read and hear nothing. He is silent. He does absolutely nothing. So the younger brother gets the, the resources and the money and the wealth coming to him. And it says not many days later... The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So think about this. He's asking to withdraw his inheritance or his property early. So he's going to take a hit. It's not going to be as big as it was. If you've ever tried to take money out of a 401k, you know it's a costly decision to take that 30 or 40% hit. And yet he does it. His situation is so intolerable, he has to get out of there. Not only does he get the livestock and the land and everything else, he literally puts it out on the yard and says, yard sale this weekend because I'm out of here on Monday. This is the equivalent of a fire sale or going out of business. Everything must go. 
He's not going to haggle. He's not going to try and get the most for his dollar. He just wants out. And so he does it. Not many days later, he leaves. It says he goes off into a far country. This is Jesus' way of saying the world of the Gentiles or foreigners, those not naturally his people. Again, my family from Croatia has taught me this. Even when, when we leave, it's a big, big deal because they're not going to see us for at least another year, maybe two, because we're a family of six and we like double the family size in Croatia when we land there. It's just huge. They do the same thing, like I said, when their sons come visit for the weekend to do laundry and head back to where they work and where they live, not 40 minutes away. It is emotional, borderline teary, not just on, not just on the mother's part, but on the father's part. They're going to be a car ride away in less than an hour, and yet still that separation is enough to make them melt. To him, the younger son going away to the far country should have been a sweet, emotional time. And instead, we just read that he takes off. He leaves. The father can't show any display of affection because of the dishonor it would bring him further, and the older brother won't show it because of his attitude. It's as if the older brother says to the younger, fine, to hell with you. And we read that the younger son then squandered everything. He went and he spent everything, or he squandered his property in reckless living. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, in other words, it's all gone now. Now, we read this reckless living or squandering, right? And this is where some of those connotations come in, don't they? Of, oh wait, you went to the equivalent of Vegas because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? You just went and kind of sold your wild oats and, and just did whatever you wanted to do and just lived with reckless abandon. You know, for the longest time, this verse or these two words would have been translated more so as extravagant generosity, not licentious living, not, not, the, not the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle, but someone who knows that they have no social network and they're in a new place. And they need to invest and take the resources they do have to, to ingratiate themselves to new friends. Because it's not about what you have or even who you know, but who knows you. So he's in a far country and he's taking a lot of people out to lunch and dinner. He's buying them these gifts to basically say, hey, I want you to remember me because I'm new to the area. This is how he takes his wealth. He's He's not wasteful and reckless. He's strategic. He just wanted to leave his father and his older brother. But it's not enough. He spends everything. And after he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. He has no more resources to fall back on. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, a child who had to do his chores and work his father's land, but who also had hired servants to help him, now becomes a servant and a slave to a foreigner. And this foreigner sent him into his fields to feed pigs. You know that if you are Jewish, 
you don't associate it with pigs at all. It's one of the most unclean, unholy animals to even come in contact with. You'd only tolerate them because they were the equivalent of a Roomba. They would go around and eat the trash. And that was it. And that's why you didn't associate with them. That's why they were considered unclean. And yet he's going to feed them. He constantly is going lower and lower and lower in life. He does this all in a foreign country, away from his family, away from his upbringing, away from everything he knew to be true. And it got so bad that he was longing, verse 16, to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. How bad does it have to get for you to want to eat the equivalent of less than dog food because you're so hungry? That was his station, and it says, and no one gave him anything. All the wealth he wasted to ingratiate himself to people got him to a point where he was feeding slop to pigs, and they wouldn't even let him eat the pig food. He is getting so, so low, but what other options does he have? He has literally burned all of his bridges. He's cut himself off from his father, his family, and his community. He has taken everything that has been given to him and thrown it away to foreigners and outsiders, those who would be considered enemies. This is not a small thing. If he were to come back, he would have to endure a ceremony called the Kazaza ceremony. Literally means the cutting off. He would be met right on the entryway into the community, whether through the town gates or in the town square, before he ever enters home, by the whole community coming out. And someone would bring a big old pot and literally throw it at his feet and destroy it and say, this is how we view you. You are damaged goods and cut off from us forever. That is how you treated somebody who acted the way like this younger son did. And yet he's in a point where he literally has no more options. Verse 17, it says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? This is not a way of saying he repented. It's really not even a way of saying he had remorse. He is still being strategic. He says, I know people my father employs that have it better than I do. I can't go back as a son, nor do I want to. Maybe my dad will give me a job. Maybe I can earn a living and start paying him back. He comes to himself not in repentance, but in awareness. He recognized how he can improve his station. And so he says, so I will arise. He sees his need for a resurrection. Only it's one he tries to maneuver and get with his own strength. He has nice words. He's got his elevator pitched down flat, doesn't he? It says, I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He knows he's got to at least say that. But what he really wants to say is, treat me as one of your hired servants. Let me learn a skill. Let me help you out. Let me, let me try to pay you back. At least 
Let me earn a decent day's wage and try and live. So he arose and came to his father. Verse 20. Man, I love this. Before we ever leave that verse. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It is meant to be heard that way. A cascading depth of emotion and action on the part of the father. You see, he went off to a far country and his father couldn't pursue him because of the dishonor it would also bring to him. But he was there ready and waiting to receive him if and when he ever comes back. His father was out looking for him, in other words. Searching out from when his son would return. When he saw him, he felt compassion, not rage, which I might express. How dare he have the gall to come back here? Instead, he he is filled with emotion that gets him up out of his seat and runs. Something very shameful for a Jewish man or a Middle Eastern man to do. They would never run. They would never disgrace themselves by such an act. They are the original... I want to say something, but I'm not going to say it. They, they are so cool, they are too cool to ever run. And yet he runs. And he doesn't just run to him to let him have it. He runs with arms wide open to embrace him. And not just to embrace him, but to kiss him. Kiss him in a way that we as Americans are very uncomfortable with when men kiss each other. And not like in the, the cheesy, sloppy, wet kiss of a romantic love, but like deep, affectionate, I will do this because I love you. Kissing on the cheek before you leave. That when you go to other parts of the world, you just have to get used to. (laughs) This is how the father greets the young son. And he does it before the community can come out and break that vessel and declare him cut off forever. The father risks it all again to go after the younger son to protect him from that ever happening. And this is why this is so, so significant. We read the son going into his elevator pitch. It says this. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Period. Full stop. He doesn't wait to get into his request. He doesn't wait to finish his speech. He has been interrupted by the love of the Father. And this actually becomes the lowest point. This is his rock bottom. Not when he was longing for pig slop, but when he's confronted with the ever-loving arms and kiss of his father. He's no longer worthy to be called a son, and now he gets that. There's no more posturing. There's no more maneuvering. There's no more strategy here. There is just acceptance of who he really is and who his father really is, perhaps for the first time in their life. But the father, verse 22 said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe 
and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and have a party. <laughs> let us celebrate, not with whatever rags we can scrounge up, but the best we have to offer. In fact, don't just put any robe. Put the best robe. Put my clothes on him. So that when the community sees him, they see me. And don't just escort him here barefoot. That's what a slave would get. He is a son. He needs shoes to show that he's part of the family. All of this is happening. He, the father is giving the best to the younger son yet again. This makes me think of what Paul says in Galatians 3. That what's happening for the younger son is what happens for you and me. When we are baptized into Christ, we have, been, we have put on Christ. And when that happens, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you're clothed with the clothes the Father, father provides, it overrules anything and everything else about you. In verse 24, they began to celebrate. This is the point. Something that was lost is found. And the father, like the woman and the shepherd, throw a party. Only now we hear the rest of the story. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he, the older son, called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. But his father came out and entreated him. What would have been happening in that moment would have been more serious than what the younger brother asked for. To refuse to come in to your own father's party and house because you were angry with him was a, a sign of visible disrespect, not just to the father, but to the whole community. In other words, what he did was so public and so disgraceful, he probably should have been treated worse than any way we could have imagined the younger brother being treated by saying, Father, can I have my share of the inheritance? Can I have my share of the property? His, his defiant, I'm not going in there, is enough to say, who's the real slime ball here? Who, who really has a, a heart that's hardened and far from the Father? And yet what does the Father do? He goes out and entreats him. He doesn't sit back and say, well, he's going to get what he deserves. He goes out and talks to him. And when he does, it says this, the younger son answered his father, look. Fathers are laughing right now. Have you ever had your child say that to you? Dad's. You're trying to talk to them. And maybe you actually have the, the Holy Spirit overruling and overriding all your natural emotions. And you're actually doing it in a healthy way. And they say, look, 
Dad, I am not sanctified enough (laughs) to not let my displeasure become exceedingly visible when that happens. And my kids know it. And they get scared of it. And I hate that. I hate that because in my heart, I love my kids. And I want them to see me as loving them. But I am just as sinful as the next guy. And I still have those hard times where they're defiant and they're trying to tell me they know better and all their 12-year-old self. And they talk back and they say, look, Dad. And I say, no, you look. But the father doesn't do that. This father doesn't do that, I should say. He says, look, all these years, all these years, where is it? I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, which we don't know, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, know your place. Son, you don't know what you're saying. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Don't you realize you're with the Father? And all that I have is already yours? You're saying what I've given you is not enough. I'm not enough. In other words, you, you wanted something from me. You didn't want me. And you didn't recognize that everything was at your disposal. He says... It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother, not just my son, but your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And this really is the point of the parable. For the father, joy is in the finding. And for the younger son, joy is in being found and restored to the community. But for the older brother, the jury is still out. And we get no response. We don't know whether he stays off at a distance like the rest of the Pharisees and the scribes looking at Jesus receiving the sinners and tax collectors as friends and welcoming them into fellowship or whether he accepts that he really is no better than his younger brother. And at the end of the day, he has a almost intolerably gracious father entreating him to come into the party. This is what Jesus is doing with those Pharisees and scribes. And it's what he does for us, even now. Whether we're lost out in the wilderness because of our own stupidity, or we're lost inside of the house, Jesus comes to seek and to find that which is lost. To bring us into the party that the Father is throwing when those who are his are found and brought back to life. So what do we do with this? We will never find God through our duty or our obedience, and we can never outrun him through our rebelliousness. In other words, Jesus is the good shepherd who pursues us in the wilderness as well as inside the house when we're lost. In this way, he's the true elder brother, the the brother we all need 
who doesn't just sit idly by and let us go about our destruction, but who actually intercedes for us. And who the author in the New Testament book of Hebrews then says, Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. He identifies with our weakness. In fact, he takes on our sin and our shame upon himself so that we could be restored back to the family. He is the one who reaches out and continues to invite in the older self-righteous brothers and sisters to come into the party, as well as the sheep that need to be wrangled up and wrestled and thrown on the back of his shoulders and carried back in. And the point of all of this is to point to the prodigal God who has extravagant grace, immeasurable mercy, and unfathomable love for those who are lost, those who are hurting, and those who are dying apart from him. To truly become a Christian, then, is not to do some kind of grand gesture to please God. It's to simply trust to put your life in his hands, full stop, with no strategy, no maneuvering, no sense of accounting. God, our Father, loves you. I don't care what you've done. He's seen it. He knows it. In fact, he knows what you're planning to do right now. He still sends his son for you the true older brother who intercedes for you and welcomes you back into the Father's arms. That I do know. That's what this table before us represents. We celebrate communion, literally co-unioning with God the Father, being reconciled and restored and brought into a relationship with him He sets before us a feast to represent the great party our Father is going to throw. One day, when all of our sin and all of our shame are completely eclipsed, and we will remember it no more because we are so confronted with the loving face of our God, it burns and melts all of that sin and shame away. This foretaste is meant to be an appetizer of the greater feast and party that awaits those of us in Christ. And so I can say, on behalf of God, if you have trusted in Jesus, full stop, you have completely put yourself in his hands because he has pursued you, despite anything you have done, can do, or will do. And you are banking not on your goodness, but on his greatness to save you. This is a table and a meal for you. If you're not sure what that means, I invite you to talk with one of the elders or the deacons of this church. Or talk to somebody who invited you. Ask them, what does it mean to be a child of the Heavenly Father? To have Jesus as my true and better older brother to be brought into the family of the household of God. They want to welcome you, and they will. This is before us to remind ourselves we are in need of God's extravagant, prodigal grace. And he invites us to come and partake.